This podcast is presented by Resolver, a tech company for risk and security. Welcome to a first live edition of The Watchdog. This is your eyes and ears on the latest news and rising threats in risk and security. So every other week, we bring in industry experts to talk about the latest news and threats facing organizations today. And this week, we are taping live from our Intersect conference in beautiful San Diego. So uh, I'm really excited because I almost never get to see people's faces when I do the podcast. So this is a rare treat for me. We're going to do this roundtable style. So I'm going to ask some questions. We're going to engage in a bit of conversation. And then hopefully, we have some audience questions at the end to really start to spark the general interest of the people in the room. So I want to give everybody a chance. We'll go down the line, sort of introduce yourself and your area of specialty. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Benson. Uh, my areas of expertise are threat assessment, threat management, uh, violence prevention. I've been a security professional for about 40 years. Dan Kennedy from uh, Toll Brothers. I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Audit Officer for the company, so I'm coming from the uh, internal audit perspective. And my name is Jeff Sieben. I'm a CPP, CISSP, uh, the Chair of the IT Security Council with ASS, and also an employee of Resolver. So, very distinguished panel. I'm very excited to dive in. So today we're going to be talking about a few uh, in the news topics. We're talking about GDPR, obviously, uh, terrorism and extreme violence, which does not seem to be leaving the news, uh, insider threat, and natural disasters and emergencies. So we'll kind of go through these one by one. I think we'll have some lively conversation. So to start us off, let's start uh, a bit of a, a general question. What do you think is the biggest risk that's facing organizations today? We can start with Dave. Well, I, I think um, as we've spent a good portion of this week talking about uh, identifying, assessing, and then prioritizing risk, I still think our human capital are potentially uh, our, our biggest resource and potentially a biggest risk. I think because uh, certain things like uh, uh, acts of nature, if you will, they come and they go, you can track them, but each event, when we do have some type of extreme violent event, is a little different in its own way, and, and we all find ourselves looking at each other and saying, I, I just can't believe that just happened. Mm. So we really haven't got a, a good handle on that, both internally, uh, whether it would be from a workplace or work environment standpoint, or, or external threats that, of course, always make the news when they happen. How about you? What you got? Competition. Uh, just you know, challenging the status quo, uh, changing. You, you really need to. Um, constantly evolve as a company and uh, you know, if you don't then you're going to be passed by by your competitors. Yeah, I think uh, for me it's a self-awareness and that goes personally and also organizationally, even nationally and internationally. Um, just being self-aware is such a difficult thing uh, for many of us and so you know, finding out what's actually happening, uh, what actually did happen. Uh, and then sort of like preventing that kind of stuff going forward. So that's, I mean, not being self-aware, I guess, is the biggest risk. It's interesting. You all kind of talked about things that are generally unknown, which I guess is sort of what we're always trying to do is take the unknown, quantify it, identify it, react to it. Do you find, though, that the reactive nature of dealing with the unknown is itself maybe kind of a bit of a the wrong approach to it. It's, it's, it's interesting to have this idea that if one of our biggest threats is just the things that we don't know or the things that we maybe aren't able to self-identify about. How do you get ahead of something like that? Like how, what's the process that one does to actually try to make these things maybe less of a threat? Well, I think in, in, in my case, in my work, um, realizing and kind of bringing ourselves to the realization that uh, even though it might be unlikely and it may never happen to us, it can happen. 
Uh, because it's that act of surprise that we're not, there's not enough time spent on prevention. We're trying to identify what could happen to us, but not enough time, in my view, in training, uh, education, on what the problem is, uh, what we can do possibly to contribute or, or, or mitigate that factor, and then how we respond to it. I think it's really the risk management process is, you know, you're, you're uh, getting input from uh, a bunch of, uh, a large group of people that have different opinions and, and uh, just thinking about uh, those potential risks and um, evaluating them. Yeah, I think I, I, I tend to agree with these two. Um, the uh, sort of this, the education, the risk management process can catch a lot of this, but there's always going to be the, this idea of the black swan. Mm -hmm. So in nature, nobody's ever seen it, and then all of a sudden, oh, there's a black swan. Um, but that transferring of the, the knowledge that, hey, there, there are black swans out here, I like because you know other people that go after you can learn about all the wisdom that has come before, and sometimes that's that's also some of the challenges. The uh, there are people that don't want to listen to uh, other people's wisdom. Do you find that black swan events are the kinds of things that wind up happening as a result of blind spots, or are these just something that they're inevitable and you'll never be able to actually account for them? Well, I you know so the the, the I think the the pure idea of the black swan is that. You know, it's the, the, the true, I'm never going to know and I can never find out about it. But I think once you know that there's a black swan or a type of black swan, or I don't know how far the analogy goes, uh, then it becomes known and you know how to think about it um, maybe a little bit better. Yeah, I, I also think that we're uh, collectively guilty of deliberately not looking deep enough into potential black swans. I think what's potential mm -hmm. is to think of what's possible. Then we can determine how probable it is and how it might impact us. But by bringing that into the conversation, I was actually having a good conversation at the end of a session yesterday, that if you don't bring the possibility into the conversation, you're always going to be surprised and hence probably never really going to be adequately prepared. So that kind of leads us into a bit of a conversation about GDPR. We are days away from it actually launching. Um, do we think that? this level of it's like aggressive oversight is going to be something that actually accounts for all of the different, I mean, we're still so early in the, in the collection of this kind of mass data on the scale that we're doing it. Is, are we ready for GDPR? Is this something, is this society ready for it? Are companies ready for it? Like what's the, I mean, I guess we'll start with, with Jeff on this one, but what's sure. the, uh, <laughs> walk us through the landscape of where you think we're at, we are with it. Yeah, well, again, I think the, when, you, when you have something like GDPR, it's been uh, around. Uh, hopefully, the awareness is up on it, and I'm, which everybody's talking about it. It seems like all the, uh, all the blogs are, are, have got that tagline. But uh, I think the, uh, the awareness has been in place. This is the enforcement uh, time. And so, you know, hey, you, could, you know, you're liking it to speeding. You know, now everybody knows that they're not supposed to be speeding, and the big fines are going to come out. And so there are uh, some pretty hefty fines. And if you're not self-aware, you could be self-aware pretty quick. We're a U.S.-based company, but, and so we've been aware of it. We've uh, uh, been meeting about it and discussing it for um, close to a year now. Mm. And you know, we've concluded that for us, it is a minimal risk. But um, I think it is going to be a springboard to more regulation and um, things that do apply to us. So I think it really is relevant. 
I'm curious, because you're not, a, you are a US company and not a, a European company, for the way that you approached making that assessment, what kind of data went into it? How did you get to the point where you realized that you're able to figure that it maybe won't be too big of an impact for you guys? Ultimately, um, you know, we had our legal group in the room, uh, risk management group in the room, um, and legal did uh, reach out to third party counsel as well, and, and really that was the uh, driving factor. Okay. Yeah, I, I look at this kind of very similar to uh, some of the, uh, the frenzy, and I don't mean in any way, shape, or form to cast aspersions on what's about to happen. It's serious, particularly if you're impacted in, the Europe, uh, in Europe or whatever. But there are components within this program that everybody should be concerned about. Now, protecting child data. Um, what, what, what happens with personal data? Is there an expiration date, if you will, on your data? Or once you give it away, is it, you know, all these things I think are far beyond the, the rhetorical questions, and so I think we need to take seriously. Um, I, I also think as the program matures, there's a lot of wait and see attitude there. Uh, will the fines actually be enforced? If so, what does that do not only to a bottom line of an organization, but as we were discussing yesterday, gentlemen, the brand. Uh, do you want to be the first company that takes that hit? And what does that look like? You bring up two points that I find particularly interesting about GDPR. And the first one is about this idea of the wait and see. Because I think that we kind of look at it right now like it's, a, it's almost not our problem. It's a European problem. It's overseas. But if SOX is any indication, if this is a kind of enforcement policy that actually works, you're going to start seeing it roll out throughout the world. And so do you find that companies are actually being proactive about anticipating that? Or is it really will actually cross that bridge when we get to it. And right now, it's just not our problem. I actually see both. Okay. And uh, there are some companies that, just by the very nature of their culture, they're going to wait and see, and they're going to do uh, a more of a minimal approach based upon you know, their analysis. But nonetheless, they're not going to, in their view, go overboard with it. On the other hand, there will be others that will do their best to be fully compliant so they don't have to have it as a burden or a problem if it inevitably comes across the pond, which uh, it probably will. Yeah, David, uh, I think was saying earlier that uh, you know this is there's a Y2K feel about this, and mm -hmm. I think that's uh, you know yep. if if anybody's listening that was old enough to uh, to be part of the Y2K frenzy, it was a bit like that. How so? Well, I mean, I, maybe David, you can chat a little bit. You're pretty. Uh, you had a, a good example the other day. Yeah, it, <clears throat> I remember I was at our embassy in Finland, and. Uh, uh, the, the United States government went absolutely crazy about Y2K. And I remember as uh, literally the clock clicked to midnight <laughs> and almost had to, you could almost hear uh, the entire world inhale. Hmm. And then as the hours, days, months went by, there was this collective exhale. That, uh, and of course, then you always have the uh, Doubting Thomases that said, see, we made what to do about nothing, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but what if we had not been prepared for that? So I, I think. Somewhere in this, the message will be there has to be a balanced approach. We're a global society. Uh, it's not just what's happening in Europe or what's happening in Asia. We're all interconnected. So I think being aware and kind of coming up with prudent measures, regardless if we're directly affected, is probably the best way to go. And that's what I advise my clients. Given how strict the, the policies and especially the penalties are for something like GDPR, is it an unnecessary burden or an excessive burden that they're putting on companies? Where do you guys sort of fall in the, in the realm of how appropriate the, uh, the response is to the risk? 
it does seem very severe, but um, there's been so many uh, data breaches and something needs to change. I think people need to take it more seriously. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see um, you know, how much the context of the breach uh, plays a role in the fines, you know, how much uh, at fault was the company or was it um, a third party hack that would, would have been very difficult to prevent. Yeah, so I think, I think understanding and recognizing that uh, whether you agree or disagree, it's a bit like politics. If it doesn't hit you locally, mm -hmm. it doesn't impact you. And so some of this, you know, the rule of thought, would be we have to put some regulations in place because people just aren't getting it. And there's not, a, there's not a enough effort being placed to, to put some safeguards in place. So to some it will appear to be draconian, but on the other side of the coin, uh, if you're one of those people that was affected in a data breach, um, you have a very different view of that. Mm -hmm. Do we think that the penalties will actually get levied against the, the first offenders? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a, a gray area. So, you know, there's that, you know, hey, we were really trying our, our guts out here, mm -hmm. and we still got, you know, uh, a state actor came in, and we were, you know, we had uh, three million records exfiltrated. You know, like, it's just, we tried, you know, unless you're, our government and you're going to come in and help us protect things, you know, you know, don't find us because we were we were really trying here. And so I think um, I think there's some of uh, some of that, you know, how how much were you trying? Um, mm. They'll probably be part of the investigation. Uh, and I hope they share. Like this is it's not just a, a quiet. Let's just pay the fine and, and move on. Do you anticipate? I mean, the example that comes to my mind, uh, and it's not a perfect example, but is what ended up happening to Lehman in 2008, you know? And is there gonna be a point when a company almost, they will be allowed to fail mm -hmm. as a result of being able to show everybody else that we are going to take this seriously. And it may not be that first offender, but it might just be almost a randomly selected participant in the sort of non-compliance. Do mm -hmm. we think that's something that's a possibility on the table? Well, I, I do think that there will be a tendency to set an example. Mm -hmm. And so that's why uh, regardless of how organizations feel philosophically, they had best take it seriously. But I think number two, and, and I think Jeff hit on this, I think it's important. As we go through this process, if that's the road we're going to go on, not all data breaches are created equal. Hmm. Some are based upon greed. We've seen that in the financial and the banking industry. Some are almost intentional. Some are based upon state actors. Uh, governments and organizations that that's part of their job to uh, spy and infiltrate on other folks and the level of sophistication there, uh, it doesn't justify it. We have to take some prudent measures. And, but then there's non-state folks, which goes into more my world inside threat, um, you know, uh, uh, getting back at organizations for uh, past wrongs or whatever it might be. And then there's the criminal element. They're going to have to break this down, mm -hmm. in my view. And I think the fines and the circumstances will have to be commensurate of that to make it realistic. Before we, uh, we, we shift gears, is there anything, any tips or anything that you guys would recommend to our listeners, to the people in the room about how to potentially prepare either for GDPR itself or for its inevitable spinoffs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, just doing your due diligence. I think as long as you can show that you're um, putting those preventative controls in, in place, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's certainly possible that you can put all the controls in the world in place and they're still not going to work. But I think if you can demonstrate that you made that good faith attempt, I think that'll go a long way. Excellent. All right, so let, let us shift gears to something that's 
Beverly a little bit more A in the news and be a little bit more heartbreaking. There was another school shooting uh, last week, uh, this time at the Santa Fe High School in Texas. Um, we've seen terrorism become both a national and a global concern uh, with trends both homegrown. Uh, we've new uh, methods of attack, vehicular attacks. How has terrorism, I guess, impacted you guys' jobs directly? I think it's, it's become a point where almost everybody has to tackle with it and come to grips with it. I'd be curious to see how it's affected all of you. Well, as someone that my whole, kind of my whole passion right now is uh, detecting, mitigating, and hopefully avoiding violence, but also I have the sad duty of responding and then training and talking to audiences after they've had a tragic event like this. And by the way, we would be remiss if we didn't recognize that today is the one-year anniversary of the, uh, the tragic bombings uh, in the UK at the Ariana Grande concert. So it transcends borders, it transcends societal norms. And so I think the first thing uh, that we should understand from a risk perspective is everybody is potentially at risk. And, and no longer can I think can you say uh, that's not my problem. Uh, it's someone else's problem, and while that's a shame, we have other things to worry about. Uh, violence in general, uh, it takes many forms, and I think we would be well advised to spend less time on identifying it for what it is, terrorism, extreme violence, uh, domestic violence, but recognizing for what it is that uh, there, are some, there are some societal causes and some environmental effects that we have to get our hands around as a community, mm -hmm. as a global community, and recognize that even though the chance of being involved in a, an extreme violent event is about the same as being struck by lightning. I don't know if you've heard that before. But if anybody's ever been struck by lightning or known someone <clears throat> that did, when it happens, it's devastating, and it has these rippling effects. So we don't have the luxury of assessing whether or not that's going to happen. It's what, how we can deal with it and how we're going to respond to it, uh, both as a society as well as organizations. Dan, I'm curious from you, especially as someone who works inside of a company, that I think there's a tendency to look at things like these kinds of violence and terrorism as a government concern. This is something that we are expecting the state to take care of. But I think that there's probably a certain amount of responsibility or at least awareness that has to happen within an individual company. Is, there, is that the kind of thing that comes up? Is that the kind of thing that is dealt with? Where does that sit? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think of is physical security. You know, like, look at our facil facilities and, and how are they protected? And, um, you know, I watch people walking in the front door. We have a, a key fob system. Um, and then I see people holding the door and everybody's just kind of walking in. And, um, <laughs> I, you know, I. I talk to uh, our CFO, and we actually discussed this at, at the board level, and uh, ultimately they concluded they don't want to make our building Fort Knox. You know, they want to have that um, family uh, feel where, where uh, you, know, you are holding the door for somebody. So they've made the decision that um, you know, adding more security um, is not what they want to do. So then what's the, is, is there a, counterpoint that's at least made when that decision is made to understand the threats that are going to occur or that potentially other mitigation strategies? Like how does that ultimately resolve? Or is it really just, okay, I understand, but this is where we're going to stop and the conversation ends? Yep. So from our perspective, we, um, you know, we, we did try to improve the, the guest management system. So when, when uh, non-employees come in, uh, identifying them, tracking them so you can identify them uh, in the building is one example of something that we've uh, uh, added as a mitigating control. Uh, you know, I do think that one, uh, as we've discussed in the past, one 
potential mitigator and, and frankly a force multiplier is having an aware and trained and responsible workforce. Um, long gone are the days that we can say these are just police matters or government matters or even company matters that in fact we have to be in the business of empowering all our stakeholders in the organization. Um, that they have a personal stake in their safety and security too and by understanding that and what their role is we have this kind of um, uh, process where everybody kind of understands their role. Uh, it's very information driven and so I think that's one way you can enhance the decisions that your organization made for example that in fact we are not going to make our corporate our corporate facilities a prison so therefore we need to be much more aware and we are we want to be part of the solution instead of the problem so then going down that path we want to use data ultimately to try to help us make these sorts of decisions so we want to be able to accumulate data on the people that work at our companies we're using stuff like RFID we're using all kinds of uh, personal information to try to make these assessments. Now, is there a trade-off at that point about the amount of potential privacy invasion we have with, with our employees, or the amount, <laughs> if I feel I'm getting a reaction, but, uh, but yeah, but what is that trade-off? I mean, doesn't this now just open up more data to the possible bad actors that might want to access it now that there's more of it out there? Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I, uh, I was sitting on a plane next to uh, a vice president of safety of a, a big uh, mining company, and he says, you know, and I was, you know, young, trying to tell him about this system that collected data for him, uh, you know, because I was representing the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says very candidly, you know, the last thing we need is another system that collects more data. But what we do need is good leadership. And I think Dan's got, uh, you know, at uh, his company, it's, it was great. I mean, at a board level, they said we want this to be a family feeling uh, type of organization. And that's, that's great, that's leadership. You don't need data for that, that's just you know, leadership plain and simple. And uh, you know, just to go back to some of um, you know, this, this topic of how do, we, how do we become a little more self-aware. Mm -hmm. We all have places, you know, houses or homes that we live in. Um, every one of us has a, some sort of neighbor and you know many of us are are not wanting to know who our neighbors are. We don't want to. We don't want to get to know them. We don't want to, you know, think about them too much. Um, we uh, we live on bigger and bigger land. You know, wherever we can, and uh, we just kind of want to stay away. But I think you know people are are the reason um, being uh, aware. I think um, David will probably agree uh, in some way that people uh, you know have to help. You know, we're all people, and we all have eyes, and we all have uh, the things that we can do to uh, to intervene. And that, you know, as people are on a path to uh, to violence, um, we can we can you know discharge that by just maybe even making eye contact with our neighbors. That's really well said, and I, I would I would add to that by saying. Uh, we all have unique and pride ourselves. One of the first things I learned as a consultant, and actually before that when I spent eight and a half years with the Walt Disney Company, that we had a very unique culture. Mm -hmm. And a very, we were intensely proud about that. Um, but your cult, whatever your culture, it has to be one of trust and respect from the leadership all the way down. When you have that and you start to treat people with civility and recognize that we're all different, uh, people, and then they feel empowered to share information uh, that Jeff is talking about, then an amazing thing happens. Instead of, instead of having uh, five people in your corporate security group, you've got 5,005 people that are more aware from a safety and security standpoint. And then 
Integrated risk management means you can bring some of these tools in and enhance that, but you leverage them. You don't rely on those because at the end of the day, human beings are what are going to make or break us as an organization. And so I think by, by recognizing that from a cultural standpoint is important. So then what are some of the threats that an individual or an employee can pose to a company? How do we actually watch for that and, and use our, these 5,000 plus yeah. sets of eyes to, uh, to be security for, this, for the company? Well, that's a great question. And first of all, um, one of the big differences between classic crisis management and threat management is uh, traditionally uh, crisis management is you're planning for the uh, possibility of things to occur. Threat management almost always deals with human beings. Mm -hmm. And we're all wired a little different. We have good days. We have bad days. Many of us have a tremendous capacity to cope with life's challenges. Others, maybe not so much. It could be environmental. It could be psychological. It could be um, uh, disease. It could be lots of different things. And so we have to recognize that people behave in a certain way, both culturally within an organization, and then understand what it looks like when there's changes mm -hmm. in that behavior. And by doing that, and part of that, that, that awareness training, and I do a lot of this, people then recognize that, you know, we've all heard that expression, Dave's not acting like himself today. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because he's not. And there's probably a reason for that. And we don't judge it. But as Jeff pointed out, we find a way to assess it because there are certain behaviors that, that are more likely to lead to a path to violence, whereas most of us will never even go down that journey. So it's recognizing, reporting, and then the organization has a responsibility to act responsibly based upon that information and tied into your original question is we need to protect data. We need to maintain confidentiality when we can and also be candid when we can't. I mean, let's be honest, if someone within your organization is believed to have or engaging in child pornography, there's not a lot of safeguards you can put in place for that individual. That information is gonna, is, is gonna go. The final piece is non-retribution. If you want people to help you and be part of the solution instead of the problem, the death knell for that process is to have somebody be persecuted or punished because they shared the information. So it really is kind of a package that way that goes uh, uh, with everything else that I think makes a good best practice organization. Does this resonate? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, just some examples, a good uh, screening program for employees is certainly uh, helpful. Uh, an anonymous hotline that people can uh, report things uh, up and just the tone at the top and the, the culture um, that's driven top down. Um, ironically, we recently hired a um, vice president of culture who's a mm. former Disney employee. So. Huh. Not surprised. <laughs> Why is that? Because culture there um, is on steroids. Mm -hmm. And I know some of you, again, have your cultures. But uh, I started as an 18-year-old employee. And literally, you were told that well, your goal was to provide the finest in family entertainment. And you were there to support that, not in any way deter it. So if you saw a piece of paper on the ground, as corny as that might sound, if you didn't pick it up, there was an executive behind you that would remind you and ask you maybe why I could pick that piece of paper up, but you didn't care enough to do that. And I know many of us have these kind of uh, close-knit uh, uh, cultures, and it's based upon code of conduct, of behavior. And where we get into problems organizationally is when we deviate from that, and we tolerate it, and we find a way to, to ignore it or let bad behavior happen, and when that happens, then we're surprised when we have an event, when in fact, violence is not, is not spontaneous. Right. It's evolutionary. So 
that means we can find, if we see some signs, we can report it and hopefully either get people the help they need or put some systems in place to do that. You actually bring up a point I find fascinating. I mean, it's <clears throat> describing that uh, culture at Disney is not itself entirely surprising because it's a very outward facing culture that I think a lot of people would probably identify who know the brand. But it's interesting to me because I think sometimes you end up with companies that have their outward facing culture, the kind of culture they want people to assume that they have. And then internally, it's actually a completely different kind of culture. Mm -hmm. Is that a sustainable model? Should you try to align the two? Is there is there a reason to do so or to not do so? How does that kind of evolve? Well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll let my brothers here comment, but I would just say you can't force it. Hmm. You either buy into that process or you don't. I mean, our colleagues and my new friends here at Resolver, the Resolverites, it's very clear, <laughs> not just because of the shirt you wear, <laughs> uh, it, but that there's a definite positive culture that goes on here from the CEO all the way down. And I think that permeates in everything you do. And I think not only does that make a more productive organization, I think it's conducive to kind of a human piece to that that kind of goes with that. So that's what you see on the outside, you know, from the inside as a Resolver employee. That's what happens. You know, so we, uh, you know, there's a, there is a, a care and concern. Um, for my fellow resolverites, like I care about the ones that are all wearing the shirts in here right now, <laughs> including you, Tim. Oh, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I care about you too. Oh, yeah. okay. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I definitely see an alignment between the, the two: the outward-facing, uh, I'll call it the brand, yep. and the uh, inward-facing culture, which I, I think is a, a good thing. I think they should be aligned. Excellent. Um, all right, shifting gears one more time. We've sort of uh, running up against the clock, and I want to make sure we get a chance for some audience questions. Uh, last year, the US experienced one of the worst hurricane seasons it's had on recorded history. And unfortunately, these natural disasters are both unpredictable and inevitable. So what are some ways that each of your respective teams actually plan and prepare for natural disasters and sort of the escalation that's happening? Well, well to me, I teach and I've, I've practiced in the past what I call a three-legged stool. Readiness, response, and recovery. And so you can be as ready as you can be, and then you don't know until you respond just how ready you were. The recovery piece sometimes is a bit of a challenge. And for me, what was frustrating about this past hurricane season was that many of us, organizations that shall not be named, um, haven't learned from past mistakes. They've either not taken the time to do what we call uh, a hot wash or a post-mortem, checked their egos at the door and said, wow, we stunk at this. And oh, by the way, that went much better than inspected so that when it happens again, which of course it will, that you're better prepared to deal with that. You're never going to be perfect, but it's this cyclical evolving process that you recognize you can always do things better and kind of get that kind of collective feedback. We're a real estate company and we've uh, developed uh, homes in you know, both Florida and Houston that were impacted by the, the hurricanes. And um, I, I would say it all starts with, for us, kind of um, the land buying. You know, you want to be aware when you're buying property mm -hmm. what the risks are associated with that property. So there's a lot of due diligence that goes into that um, the land review and, and acquisition. Um, and then once construction begins, it's um, you know we generally don't build um, on a spec basis. So we have a, uh, an agreement with every buyer. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, the risk to us is during that construction period. And then once the home closes, the um, title transfers over to the buyer, and, and then, as does the risk. 
Um, so just managing that whole process and, and um, uh, it's kind of mitigated, um, you know, kind of one house at a time and, and we don't generally have like a whole bunch of properties um, aggregated in one small area. So it's by spreading it out, that certainly mitigates the risk as well. And also, uh, I guess, not building in hurricane season, right? That would also help. <laughs> <laughs> Building never stops. One thing that sometimes gets missed is just the partnerships between organizations to help out. Uh, so like I think sometimes there's this, we're an organization, we have to help our own out and nobody else is going to help. But there are other companies and maybe even in the similar space that are willing to help out you know, in these adverse impacted, uh, like a, a hurricane happening. Mm -hmm. you know, and it could be it could be anything from sending supplies to sending people to help uh, to even you know some of the uh, on the recovery side just you know some of that trauma that happens you know dealing with that so i think organizations personally could continue to uh, add and help each other out it's interesting because we as a result of those hurricanes the company started uh, an emergency assistance fund ah. that we you know they funded and then a whole bunch of employees contributed money to it and it was used to assist the people not only our employees but our our vendors and um, in those areas that unbelievable were that's great. That's great news. Yeah, I think benchmarking is important too. Many organizations, uh, when I come to, to, to consult with them, they feel the problems that they're dealing are uniquely their own and no one else on the universe has ever had that issue. So one of the things I like to bring to the table is I've done this for a while and you know what, we can probably, there's, there's always a solution for the issue and by the way, it might be the company up the street that maybe you've never had the time of day before, but when it comes to uh, uh, disaster response, I mean, there is no competition, and I, so I think that's part of that price. Expand your universe a little bit and recognize what, what other folks are doing, and if you can team up, so much the better. It's actually interesting. It's sort of similar as Jeff's point earlier, but individuals trying to look people in the eye. It's almost the same level of corporations, that they are your neighbors, mm -hmm. and that you should have that kind of sort of empathy with the people around you and the companies around you. Um, all right, so one more for you guys, and then from me, and then we'll open it up to the, uh, to the audience. So. One of the themes we obviously talk a lot about at Intersect is uh, how much we find that departments are working into, in silos and that we want to be able to break those down. Uh, do you guys have any advice, any insights, any experiences in ways that companies can actually start working cross-departmentally and breaking down those internal silos? Well, I'm very sensitive to this topic because I'm going to be speaking on it in one of the sessions here this <laughs> afternoon. So apologies for that shameless plug. Um, yeah, so as we develop integrated systems, and as we have conversations about how this is holistic, sometimes from a human capital standpoint, they're left out of the equation. And so um, uh, one of the things that I know at one of the earlier presentations was spoken of was that, you know, uh, some organizations like 45, 50% are still putting together separate reports on their various different types of risks and reporting them to their headquarters. Well. That tells me that we're still not talking to each other. And there's not been uh, as much emphasis as there probably needs to be to synthesize that. Easier said than done. But again, if we're, going, if we're all in this together, uh, other people's opinions matter and, and, and include that in the process. Yeah, to me, it's make, just making a concerted effort to um, get more interaction. And so like when we have staff meetings, I'll try to invite um, people from other groups in to talk. And, and I'll go into uh, other 
meetings that, uh, for other groups and, and just try to have, kind of force the interaction, I'll say. Yeah, I, uh, I'll liken it to a, a hockey team um, because I come from a hockey town in Edmonton. <laughs> And they didn't do very well, the Edmonton Oilers. But, you know, like when you have, you know, like there's players on a team. Um, the defense, there's the forwards, there's the coach, there's the goalie. Uh, and everyone has, you know, every department, if you, you know, make them like departments, every department has their own function. Um, but being able to know, breaking down the silos isn't, you know, the defenseman going up and scoring goals. It's, you know, knowing um, how to work with the forwards. You know, how, you know, make sure that you stay around the blue line. Uh, when we're playing this particular team, uh, they like to, you know, use these tactics. And so, you know, you, uh, you working, working together is, is mostly having that conversation. Not doing the other uh, department's job, and they're not doing your job, but working together. And I think um, just opening the, the door to conversation, you know, helps a lot. Lovely. All right. Audience participation time. Uh, anybody have anything they want to ask our distinguished panel here about the topics we've talked about, about anything else, favorite foods, whatever you want? <laughs> Throw your hands up. Yeah. Uh, without risk, uh, there is an opportunity. And I know at the outset, uh, Will Anderson spoke about that piece of the equation. Uh, let me just open it up in terms of how we can, what we can do more as risk practitioners to, to leverage or promote or support the organization with respect to opportunity? Uh, I'm just going to quickly repeat the question just for our microphone listeners. Um, but what can we do as risk professionals to expand, to introduce opportunity to the exact? Is that how? To promote, to promote. support opportunity. To, yes, to promote and, and, and support opportunity. I really like that, uh, that particular topic. Uh, I, I sat in a, a really interesting session with, uh, with Dr. Sarah Gordon uh, on the bow tie principle of crisis management or excuse me risk management and it's just as it's just as easy to put a to put a smile from a frown and 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 work that process that way that's number one number two um, by identifying potential black swans that no one wants to talk about, you are opening up potential opportunities because if it's been traditionally, we could never do that because. I learned this in the State Department because if I told the Secretary of State that he or she couldn't go to Beirut back in the day or um, Afghanistan, their answer would be, why? And you better come up with a reason, a good one, because we're going. And I think sometimes organizations were, were a little risk averse in that regard, and we need to factor that into our premise and saying, how can we make this as safe and secure as possible, realizing that without some risk, there is no opportunity. So that, that would be my response. Yeah. I think a good risk management process is not about avoiding risk. It's about um, understanding and managing risk and identifying where those opportunities are and just you know, going in with your eyes wide open and understanding the risk, but not, um, and you certainly want to have the uh, uh, opportunity to get the opportunity. <laughs> uh, the thing I would probably say um, is, you know, there's, there's you know, just being a little innovative in your thinking. Uh, I know we're all grinding away day in, day out, doing our jobs, and uh, a lot of it is tactical. Uh, but getting some desk time or uh, a time away just to think about how to, um, you know, how to sort of make those opportunities, even doing some research. We have a partner here, Right Crowd, and, you know, they did, they, they take access control data and they make it, you know, they find patterns in it and they do things, you know, with these access control systems that 
is great. Like it's just data that's sitting there. You know, the door is locked. You open it by presenting your card, and then the door opens, and then you go through. And you know, at uh, Dan's company, you know, multiple people go through, and people <laughs> hold the door open, right? Which is a good thing. But um, I think you know, being able to um, just uh, have some desk time to think about these things, uh, research, and see what other talk to other risk professionals. You know, what are they doing? Again, the community part of it. Uh, we're all probably grinding down the same type of path, and uh, you know, talking with others is a really great uh, way to open that up. It actually, it's funny. It reminds me of uh, one of my design mentors. I'm a designer at Resolver, um, and he made a point of saying before I took uh, my first job is that you have to make sure you're explicit about the fact that part of your job requires just thinking, um, and that it might look like you're just sitting there at your desk not doing anything. But we are so uh, so eager to kind of prove that we're always working and to prove our value and to demonstrate our value that it was actually somewhat revelatory for me to have someone say like, no, you have to carve out time to actually think because if all you're doing is outputting, then you're probably not actually expanding the way in the solutions that you're coming up with. So, interesting. Any other questions from our distinguished crowd? Yes. So, David, you just mentioned something kind of about the business owner or when you were at the State Department, the secretary would say, what is the risk? I'm going anyway. So that's kind of in, if you translate that to our world, it's the business accepting the risk. Mm -hmm. How do you cross that bridge of the business is going in this direction, you know what the risk is, making sure that they understand all the implications of that risk before they make that decision to go in and how do you get that? So we're a multinational company, mm -hmm. so it's different landscapes across the world. And so understanding someone accepting risk in a business in this area is very different than accepting the risk in this area and the implications are very different to our business. Yeah. How would you expand yeah. on that or provide some guidance for others who might have that challenge as well? Well, what a great question. Thank you for asking that. I, what I preach and what I advocate is a tiered approach to these types of things. So you know where, you, where you're currently doing business. You also know where you want to do business uh, and you try to project where you're going in the future. So then take a look at some of the uh, really ter tremendous tools out there for what I call business intelligence or uh, travel intelligence and kind of synthesize that and, and put together a briefing. And I know, what, briefing someone in the C-suite, you're killing me, right? But in reality, <laughs> recognizing small chunks of time and maybe it's trip by trip or maybe it's part of an annual briefing or a board meeting where you talk about the overall um, security landscape. Realistically talking about, yes, we have some concerns here, but we think they can be mitigated by this, this, and this. This is a place we probably never want to go, uh, and we all kind of know where they are. Uh, and then there's the, the rules for the road for generally for travel and, and, and for uh, embedding and, and for business. And then maintain those, those things and using some of the tools that we've talked about this week to be able to do that, to recognize what's changed. Is there a trend? Why has the trend changed in six months? The CEO may say, well, I was there six months ago. What's happened? Well, we had this, a carjacking, this and this, and we haven't been able to mitigate that. So it's opening up a dialogue. And it's, uh, it, it's kind of like uh, eating an elephant. You're going to have to bite, take one bite at a time and be patient and recognize it's part of that trust and respect in the relationship. But when you have that in place, you're much safer as an organization because I can tell you as a security professional, uh, I had to stop years ago saying, you can't go because I said so. 
in my silo, I'm the security professional, you're not. That doesn't work in 2018, and it won't be on. So having that process and everybody understand what it is. I hope I answered your question. Yeah. I want to thank our lovely panel for, uh, for joining us today. So thank you very much for... Before we uh, depart, is there any uh, places people can find you guys on the socials, anything you want to plug? Well, uh, Dave Benson, I'm on Twitter. My, my company is david.benson1, I believe. And my company is DJ Benson & Associates, a very original title, I know. <laughs> and, uh, but my website is uh, www.securingsoulsoneword.com. I'm on LinkedIn, but uh, I'm just a working stiff. I have nothing to plug. <laughs> <laughs> what about the houses? They're like beautiful houses. Right. Right. How, yeah. You're creating homes for people. Like, yeah. that they're just beautiful. Um, I, uh, you can find me on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter at Jeff Sieben, uh, J-E-F-F-S-I-E-B-E-N. It's a good way, and you can ask me any question on there, and I may or may not answer it. <laughs> I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, Twitter, um, excuse me, um, uh, LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn. Excellent. Not on Twitter. Excellent. All right. Uh, and I think, want to thank all you guys for actually coming out and joining us. It was our first little experiment at Intersect. So thank you guys very much. And uh, I want to remind you that if you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or directly on our website at resolver.com slash watchdog. So thank you very much, everybody. Yay!